HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. Offered in print and digitally on TotalFood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we will be talking from uh, Kansas, right? Uh, we, my guest today is Mike Calicrate, an independent cattle producer, business entrepreneur, and political activist. He serves as an outspoken leader in addressing the rural, social, and cultural impacts of current economic trends. He was a founding member of several farm advocacy groups, including the Organization for Competitive Markets, RCAF USA, and the Kansas Cattlemen's Association. He also, and this is most interesting and important, was a lead plaintiff in a class action lawsuit against the world's largest meat packer, IBP, which is now part of Tyson Foods. And he alleged in this lawsuit unfair and discriminatory marketing practices. And this was over two decades ago. So Mike has been in the trenches fighting the good fight for about 25 or 30 years. Mike, thanks so much for joining me again today. Welcome back to the show. Uh, It's a joy and a delight to have you here. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Katie. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of anybody better than you, except for maybe Greg Gumthorpe, (laughs) in terms of really (laughs) explaining what's going on uh, in uh, animal uh, husbandry, right, or or livestock farming right now. But first, I have to ask you, you were a rodeo rider? Yeah, I was. Uh, (laughs) When I was in high school, I was a mountain climber, just so you know kind of how how I like to live. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, living and, and, on the edge is clearly something you enjoy. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so I was a mountain climber and on a rescue team. And and uh, and then as I was tra- going through high school, I got interested in, in bull riding. Uh, and, and so I took up the rodeo career, and I rode bulls professionally for around 10 years. Wow. That's what got me through college. How many what, bones did you break? Uh, uh, hurt, you know, I cracked my couple ankles and, you know, just banged up a bit, but no, uh, no other real broken bones. Amazing. I've actually gone to watch bull riding exhibitions myself. I love the rodeo. Um, and occasionally they show it at, uh, in Madison square garden, if that isn't weird enough, but anyway, yes. So, okay. Onward. Um, first of all, 
you know, I want people to know that they can go to your website, nobull.com, and learn a lot about what is going on in the cattle business right now. Um, and one of the articles that I read when I was re- preparing for this show was um, kind of a, a how did we get here uh, scenario, which you uh, gave a very thorough explanation, historical explanation of why uh, cattle producers are in the position that they are now. So without taking too much time, I'm going to ask you if you can just give us a quick history and explanation of, first of all, the Packers consent decree, which obviously had a big impact, and then the terms captive supply and formula cattle, because they too are uh, major terms that I think most people are not familiar with and don't understand the impact of. Well, Katie, a hundred and some years ago, we had five big meat packers controlling around 70% of the marketplace. And Congress back then decided that's too much power and too few hands. Uh, The big packers were taking advantage of the producers on one hand and the, and the consumers on the other. And, and so they, they decided to, to pass a consent decree or impose a consent decree that basically broke up this market power. They separated the meat packers from their, auction yards and their, their procurement uh, of, of livestock. They, they made them procure in a competitive market. Uh, they, they interrupted their connection to retail uh, that, through their ownership of rail transport cars uh, and, and, and separated that relationship at, at retail where they were controlling prices. And basically the, the government said, look, this is what you're going to make. Uh, you're going to continue to slaughter animals, but you're going to, you're going to, be limited to the amount of money that you take out of the out of the supply chain, and 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 so that that law was in place then, uh, or that consent decree was in place uh, on through the early uh, 1900s, and was was followed by the Packers and Stockyards Act, which was the legislation right. that basically drafted the law that that was going to keep this market competitive. After the monopoly, uh, Packer monopoly controlled it in in the early 1900s, and so uh, it, we went along, and the market was working for producers. It was working for consumers. We had a lot of independent packers across the country. At St. Francis, Kansas, in 1978, I could sell to as many as 20 different meat packers in right. in Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, Oklahoma, and and that number quickly after Ronald Reagan came in. To office and decided that the government was the problem and that we needed to deregulate and and turn uh, big corporations loose. We by the end of the 80s and uh, we we basically had four firm concentration at 85 percent. We've lost our markets, uh, less, lost the competition. Uh, producers uh, quickly were losing their uh, share of what consumers spend for beef and, and meats in general and, and, and really agricultural products in general. And we had this massive, uh, we were on our way to a massive collapse of, of, our, of our food system in, the, in being controlled in the hands of just a few corporations again. And that's uh, when but, we had farm aid in the 1980s, right? That's right. In fact, I remember being at the 25th year of the farm aid uh, concert and I was on a panel with Willie Nelson uh, at the news conference and I congratulated Willie for 25 years of supporting family farm agriculture, but I said, Willie and, and the other singers as well, I said, We've, we're going to have to do a lot more than sing about it 
<laughs> if we're, if we're going to fix it. And they, they applauded it. They said, absolutely. We've got to break these Packers up. We have to restore competition. Uh, this, this, we've done nothing but, but make it worse. Uh, uh, actually since Farm Aid started. And, and, it, and it, today we see the fragile system uh, breaking. And, it, and yes. it's in, I mean, it's, it's no surprise to anyone that, that understands our industry that it can't help but break. It's, it's fragile. It's, it, it's just running at 100%. Red line, like a red line on the, your engine, it's running all the time at that 100%. And any little thing that happens, it's, it's going to fail. Yeah. Right. Very interesting. Just to bring this into a sort of consumer or, or, or so people really understand what has happened here. The amount of your consumer dollar has dropped dramatically since those days. So give us, you know, tell us what the differential has become uh, since the, the more prosperous days of, of agriculture in general, which uh, preceded the farm aid crisis. Right. And, and the, when the market was competitive back in like 1970, for example, uh, just about the time I was getting out of high school and headed to college, uh, the, the producer, the livestock cattle producer in particular, was getting anywhere from 65 to 70 percent of what consumers spent for beef. And that is the same beef measured in the same way as we do today, where the producer today is getting 35 percent of what the consumer spends for beef. So they basically lost half of what their share was when the market was competitive. And if you calculate what an animal is worth today at a Walmart grocery store in the meat counter, it's $3,500. And if you just take that lost share of, of say, 35%, they've lost over $1,000 of their share at the farm and ranch gate. No wonder rural America is dying. And yeah. no wonder we've lost nearly half of our ranchers. And of course, in pork and poultry, it's even worse. So, so we have, that is a measure of market power. The amount of money that a corporation or, the, or a group of companies, as like in today's uh, meatpacking uh, scenario, the amount that they can extract from the market uh, uh, that is the unfair amount that would be in excess of what a competitive market would allow. And the way this has happened, just to make this crystal clear for listeners, is that the number of packers has been diminished to the point where, as you said, it's for a four firm, meaning four, uh, four company concentration, meaning that all slaughter uh, and processing happens within essentially the gates of these four major firms. And that's why they are able to dictate your price. Is that correct? That's correct. There's, there's about 27 big plants across the country that, that do the slaughter, and, and they have a chokehold on the supply chain, on the pathway of, of, of cattle, turning it into beef on its way to the consumer. They have a chokehold, and they absolutely control how much flows through that chokehold. And, and this is something that should have never happened had the Packers and Stockyards Act been enforced. But secretary after secretary of agriculture drank the Kool-Aid, the globalization Kool-Aid that Dan Glickman, I thought, said very well. He said, in, in, he said, in this modern day of globalization, we need big companies that can do business globally. And this is what drove us to this point of failure. Very interesting. So... <clears throat> Um, 
I lost my train of thought there, but I want to move on from sort of the history part of this lesson and um, talk about the Prime Act, which is part of uh, proposed legislation to assist uh, agricultural enterprises, uh, particularly, I guess, um, you know, uh, meat industry enterprises uh, in kind of uh, solving the bottleneck but also supporting the ranchers so that they don't all go belly up in the wake of all the plant closings that we've seen from COVID-19. So can you explain some of the, the what, what the measures are that are being proposed and why you don't think they are going far enough? Well, the, the Prime Act has been around a while. It hasn't caught traction. Senator, uh-huh. uh, Rep- Representative Thomas Massey uh, introduced the bill and uh, along with Pengree. And and it's it's just basically a, a a law that said that if if you're a small packer, a custom plant, that you can sell meat cuts to consumers as opposed to half carcasses and whole animals and and uh, and and quarters and eighths and, and and so forth. That you can sell cuts to, huh. to to consumers, and and that isn't a terrible idea. But the problem is it doesn't do anything for the bigger operators, the operators like that, that might do, you know, 10 or 20 head a day or 10 or 20 head a week uh, that really need some serious market access to where they can start moving some volume. The, the Prime Act would, would help some, some uh, smaller operations maybe connect uh, to consumers. Say you're a consumer and all you want to buy is the ribeye steaks. Well, what they don't realize with the Prime Act is if you can't sell the whole animal, you can't you can't be in business, right? And so somebody comes along, they buy your ribeyes. Now what am I going to do with my hamburger? And so I've been in the business twenty years, and what I've seen a major cause of failure of customers that I cut for in our USDA plant that does allow individual cuts to be sold is people end up with a warehouse full of trim that bankrupts them. They can't yeah. sell the whole animal, and so we do need to be selling more whole animals. But we also need to go a lot farther, and we've got to eliminate the predators in the marketplace. We have to get rid of the beat packer abusive power so that producers in general, those who raise livestock for a living, but also others that don't raise it as their sole income, do have access to a more fair marketplace. The Prime Act doesn't fix it. It's Uh one small step but it doesn't fix it. And it cannot be our big ask right now at this time of, of the, that we have Congress listening, that at this time that we have the consumer listening. We need a bigger system that works for everyone, not just a handful of folks. And think about the Prime Act that doesn't require inspection. If you're still in a marketplace where the biggest cheater wins, which is today, that's the marketplace we have. Yeah. Then, then the biggest cheater not having an inspection is going to be a pretty dangerous source of your, of your protein. I wouldn't trust it. I think we still need inspection, and there's some things we can do today with USDA if, they, if they'd be willing to expand inspection to local veterinaries and veterinary clinics, vet techs, you know, people that are well-trained with animal science degrees in local communities providing inspection equivalent and better, actually better than USDA, and that can be done in the, in the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the other problem is the small plants around the country are now backed up until the fall, some of them until next year. Wow. And, and so, honestly, 
passing the Prime Act doesn't increase the amount of, of livestock that are going to be able to be processed. Uh, what we really need is a program, some policy, that allows us to rebuild those 20 packers that I had, you know, in 1978. We right, need to right. rebuild those businesses and give them safe and fair market access without the predatory practices of multinational global monopolies that just put them out of business. And, and we also have to go so far as to break up the big retail power as well. It's wrong that Walmart, you talk about why is this food system fragile? Why is the, the food chain so fragile? Well, Walmart has made it that way. Kroger, Safeway, Cisco, the biggest companies have driven the prices down so low to their suppliers, and of course the suppliers are the meat packers, that they have done nothing but drive the prices lower to their suppliers, which are the cattle producers, the pig producers, the right. chicken growers. And now the system is easily broken because everything has been running so close and most of it running in the red for so long that we haven't even kept up the maintenance on these slaughterhouses. Uh, we're paying our workers below living wages. I mean, there has been so many dollars extracted out of this system because of that abusive market power of the few that there's hardly any equity left. The system has got to be rebuilt. And we have, that's what we need to be focusing on. But to think that the Prime Act is, is going to fix it, isn't, that isn't going to happen. The small plant that just is reopening now in, South, in Pierre, South Dakota, that's exciting. That's going to be a plant that might do 70 animals a week. But they've got to be able to sell the whole animal. They've got to be able to have market access. The Prime Act does not help them. That little plant, just read an article about it this morning, they've gone through 503 pages of regulations. Uh, with the with the USDA trying to get inspection, and, and the the whole HACCP inspection process is a fraud on its face. No we kidding. can reduce this amount of of regulation. We can make inspection real and effective. But we've got to get the USDA on our side. And right now, the USDA and it's and it's been this way for for decades. The USDA works for the big meat packers and the big retailers. There's been a revolving door for years from the staff in USDA yes. on into the big packing companies, and, and we have got to stop that from happening. That has got to stop. I mean, the, the administrator for FSIS, Al Almanza, after three decades with USDA, uh, allowed JBS's rotten meat to be sold in the United States. And this went on for 90 or more days. Finally, Trump appointed Secretary Sonny Perdue, and Sonny Perdue, with much pressure from groups that I belong to, said, hey, you know, Mr. Almanza, we really need to stop letting that rotten meat in the country. So that's what happened. They stopped it, and Al Almanza quit USDA, retired, and went to work for JBS, the very <laughs> company he was allowing the rotten meat to come in from. This is the kind of corruption we have in USDA. And yeah. I believe that USDA has been hell-bent to get rid of small packers for, for 30 or 40 years as part of the plan to give few corporations more and more power. And, and we need to stop it. USDA has got to support a food system that benefits producers and consumers. The one that they support today only 
supports a handful of corporations. That policy has to be changed. And these secretary, secretaries of agriculture that have bought into this globalization that we need big companies to do business globally, they've got to change their, their thinking. Well, it is very interesting to me that uh, that the USDA has become the tool and the pawn of the large packers. I mean, what you know? What is their what is their rationale for not uh, encouraging the growth of small packers? Is that simply a political fallout from them essentially being bought and paid for by the big packers? Or is there some other reason why they, for example, you were talking earlier in one of the pieces that I read, you were talking about how they wouldn't extend, you know, your slaughterhouses or these small plants are working overtime. You know, the workers are exhausted. They're trying to fill the gap that has been, uh, you know, exposed as a result of COVID-19. And uh, and the USDA inspectors, uh, USDA is saying that inspectors cannot uh, add more hours to their inspection time or they won't give them more inspectors so that they can run two shifts. Um, they're just sort of throwing up every roadblock possible uh, in order to uh, hasten, as you said, the demise of the small plant. And I'm just, there's just a fundamental disconnect in logic for me uh, for that uh, chain of thought. I don't, I don't understand it. Can, please explain. <laughs> well, I, as soon as the COVID hit and we saw our business was skyrocketing here in Colorado Springs at our further processing plant, not the slaughter facility, but the further processing plant. And that's mm-hmm. where it really hits you because you've got to go full retail on everything you're doing now. So you're not just sending out wholesale high volume stuff that's easily processed in boxes to to restaurants and institutional accounts. And so we really got hammered in Colorado Springs in our cut plant. And I requested to Paul Kicker, uh, USDA administrator, the guy that took Almanza's place, uh, uh, I asked him, will you give us a couple extra hours a day so that we can slow the pace so our workers can work at a more relaxed and, and safer uh, pace. It would not have required any additional inspection time uh, as far as the inspector was concerned because at further processing, the inspectors typically aren't there anyway. They, they, uh, one inspector might visit five or six plants a day, and so to run a couple extra hours wouldn't cost the government anything and wouldn't risk food safety at all, it would have been a very easy decision to make, and I just got a big flat no. And when I responded with some pushback, I never got a response at all. But that was a no-brainer. Now, at the processing part where we slaughter, there has to be an inspector there full time. I can get it. I get it that they don't have the inspectors and they don't have the, the budget to increase that right now, but it's because of the policy saying an inspector's time is more beneficial and more efficiently used in big plants that kill five and 6,000 cattle a day rather than the plant that might kill 10 or 20 animals per day. And so I believe that it's been a policy within USDA, not Congress, but within USDA to not encourage small plant operations. And when, if you look at some of these HACCP plans in 503 pages of regulations, that the little plant in Pierre, South Dakota has to go through in order to be certified for the, to put on the market of inspection, that is just insane. And the fact is, the small plants are far, far safer than the big plants. They're slower, they're, they're more meticulous, the workers are typically 
better trained. They're not as overworked. They're not abused. They're, they're not living in the shadows because they're illegal immigrants. Uh, it's, it's so much better in the smaller plants. And so it's, it's just a matter of USDA seeing the world that, that in a way that benefits both producers, consumers, workers, and, and, and the whole overall economy. Another aspect of this USDA business, just to stay on that for a second, and then we'll take a quick break, um, is the uh, the whole, you, you alluded earlier to the fact that Al Almanza was allowing JBS to export uh, tainted or rotten meat to the United States for quite some time. But the whole, the overall uh, labeling issue around uh, importing beef from any number of like up to 60 different countries, uh, all with different uh, tr- uh, different regulations and different um, protocols around uh, food safety, if they have them at all. Um, and then because it's uh, broken here or it's packaged here, it gets to be labeled U.S. Uh, as a USA product. Wh- why doesn't the USDA take a stronger stand around um, supporting American uh, grown uh, animal proteins. I, this is something I've never understood. I know why cool was repealed, but I don't know why the USDA does not fight harder for American farmers. Well, Katie, the, the, the deal is pretty much the same there. They're, they're working mm-hmm. for the multinational corporations who have, who have infiltrated the USDA uh, in, in a lot of different positions. And, and it's about 20-some countries that we're able to import beef in from that have now full access to every state in America, every state in the United States, they, the foreign, foreign countries, foreign corporations have full access, but a small plant in Binkelman, Nebraska, that's, that's, a, that's a custom plant, can't cross over into Kansas or over into Colorado, mm-hmm. even though they live on the border. That's just how unfair that part is. But now what we've done is taken it even further. The, the foreign beef that comes into the United States in crossing the border upon being repackaged, just reboxed right. or reprocessed, whatever, can carry the mark of product of the USA. That is fraudulent. And the yes. USDA is instrumental in that fraud. They are allowing that fraud. And it would be a simple decision by the Secretary of Agriculture. It does not require Congress to stop the false labeling. Stop deceiving and misinforming America's consumers. It goes right along with the ban on country of origin labeling. The big meat packers do not want consumers knowing that they are bringing beef in from other countries. In fact, taking up space in this broken and fragile supply chain to the consumers, which which are blocking U.S. citizens who produce our food from having access to get processing on their animals. Right, right. We're going to take a short break uh, and come right back with Mike Kralicrate, talk a little bit more about the cattle industry and what uh, what we should be paying attention to now that we're all suddenly having our eyes open to the, the problems with our food supply chain. Um, so stay tuned. Mike's got more to say. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. From day one of the COVID-19 crisis to today, the focus of Total Food Service has been to listen to the needs of their restaurant and food service readers. 
They were stunned by the endless stream of heartwarming stories. Restaurants everywhere were stepping up to feed hospitality workers and first responders while nimbly converting to takeout and delivery options. Total food service coverage has now moved to the planning forward stage. Offered in print and digitally at totalfood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Need answers and solutions? Find them at totalfood.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, talking with Mike Calicrate. Uh, check out his blog, nobull.com. It's great. Or is it nobull.org or com? Oh, it's it's mikecalicrate.com. Mikecalicrate.com. Okay, sorry. And, then, and, then, just, no and then just click click on the blog and it'll take you to the Noble listserv and, and, and blog. Lots of great information there. So now let's go back to, uh, to this, this whole, you know, the, the monopolization uh, and the impacts of monopolization. When we talk about the prime act, not going far enough, um, you know, the fact that there's any legislation whatsoever around meatpacking is kind of amazing. I mean, I don't like Thomas Massey, uh, but I, I, I must say, I appreciate that. Um, but how likely is it that any legislation uh, is going to uh, not meet a, a death knell in uh, Mitch McConnell's Senate when it comes to uh, having big meat packers put a lot of pressure on uh, senatorial votes. I, I just I don't see how you're going to get this past him. Katie, we aren't going to get it past him. <laughs> we have to have an election this fall that that, that changes the administration, and I know that's going to be hard for a lot of my cowboy friends to. To, to stomach, but we have simply got to take our government back, one that serves the people over the corporations. And Mitch McConnell, he, he works for JBS. He, I mean, he, yeah. I mean, look what happened to the former Speaker of the House, uh, John Boehner. You know, he orchestrated the repeal of country of origin labeling, along with Pat Roberts, uh, yep. Senate Ag Committee uh, in the in the Senate. And and then what's Boehner do? He retires. And goes to work on the advisory board for JBS. No Wouldn't way! Wouldn't you love I did to not know? know that. Wouldn't well, you love like, to know what he's getting paid? Yeah, right. And same with Tom Vilsack walking right into into uh, his dairy lobbying jobs. I mean, yeah. oh, please. Honestly, I, honestly, these guys are are criminal. It's criminal what what they've done I, to I, our food system. And and so I think we we you're right. Uh, Mitch McConnell's not going to allow the the people to have their government back. Uh, we've got to get him out of there, and and yeah. we and we we need to we really need to see some major change in D.C. in order to get this monopoly broken up. But I've got a I've got somebody that I have confidence in. His name is Rohit Chopra, and he is one of the commissioners on the Federal Trade Commission. Oh yeah. And Rohit is Rohit has been to the last two years annual meeting of the Organization for Competitive Markets, and Rohit is completely on board with breaking up abusive market power, including that in technology or including that in, in meatpacking. Right. And if we could change the administration and Rohit could become the lead Federal Trade Commission commissioner, then we can go ahead and begin the process of breaking up the big meat packers and their market power. Well, hasn't Donald Trump, and I, you know, I'm going to say right here, I, I loathe the man with every fiber of my being. I'm happy to go on record with that. But he did announce recently, just in the last 10 days or so, that he was, you know, he was going to look into the consolidation of the packing industry. How likely is it that something will actually happen, or is he just paying lip service? What do you think? Are you optimistic? Have you noticed- have you noticed during this COVID stuff how, how Donald Trump 
talks about these amazing companies, these, these wonderful, incredibly great <laughs> companies. And it's always a multinational corporation. Uh, yes. Like Boeing, or or like Ford, or like General Motors, or 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 like one of the multinational drug companies. He just loves these big companies, and and I tell you, I for having to have Donald Trump look into the meatpacking monopoly and not see just these incredibly great companies. I've got I've got doubts whether that's going to go anywhere. And then when I see uh, Attorney General Barr letting. <sighs> Uh, uh, General Flynn off the hook for, uh, I mean, he admitted lying to Congress he yes. ad, or FBI. He admitted lying to the vice president and we're just going to let him off the hook. And I yeah. see, I see uh, uh, Attorney General Barr looking at this whole packing thing and saying, oh yeah, it's very, very clear. This was nothing but a COVID problem. And, you know, oh, and that fire last fall in the Tyson plant, you right. know, that was just an accident. And, and, you know, this is just a market response to these to these crises that, that we are, we're obviously going to have from time to time. These guys don't believe in independent business. They don't believe in competitive markets. They believe in concentrated power, and that is what they serve. Yes, that's true. Never was a truer word spoken, Michael Calicrate. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the John Tyson uh, ed- or you know advertisement, I guess it was, that was in virtually every newspaper, so it was in the New York Times and the, and the Post. Um, he admitted that the industrial food chain is broken. What is he really saying when he says that? You know what I mean? Like, I couldn't understand what the motivation was. Like, what was he asking for, essentially, from... Um, from the American public when he announced that the food chain was broken, that we needed to give them bailout money or, you know. <laughs> well, I, I think that's part of it. Uh, yeah. I, I think I think what uh, John Tyson was, it, it's too bad he didn't admit that he broke it uh, and, and his, of model of, his model of business broke it. But, right. but I think what he was really looking for was permission to raise prices. Uh-huh. And, and that's exactly what happened. And that uh, is so, what's going to happen, of course. And, and, yeah. and so to give you an example, during that first week of COVID, our retail prices at Ranch Foods Direct, our retail, I'm sorry, our retail volume at Ranch Foods Direct was up 3.7 times the year before. Wow. So now you can see why I was asking the USDA for just a little longer day, right? Sure. Because we were packing all that into the same hours. And, and so, wow. and so things leveled out. We got down to about 1.3 uh, normal and we, that was okay. We could handle that. Yeah. But then John Tyson put that ad in the New York times and whatever other papers that he spent a whole lot of money for those full page ads, telling the, telling the consumer and the taxpayer that the, that the uh, food system was broken and our business rocketed back up again Woo. at the same time. Because he panicked people. People yeah. became scared that there's going to be shortages. Sure. And at the same time, Tyson and his buddies, the other meat packers that they cooperate together, raised box beef prices, basically doubled them. Wow. They went, they went from $2 and change to $4 and change at, uh, per hundred weight of box beef. And, and so this, this was a, about a strategy. We're going to lose our wholesale business, which is about half of what a typical, you know, that's about, wholesale represents about half. The restaurant business, okay. HRI, hotel, restaurant, institutional trade, represents about half the meat sales and retail the other half. Well, if Tyson is going to lose a bunch of volume, 
they certainly don't want to disappoint their shareholders. They are going to need to just increase gross revenue by increasing the prices. And this is so wrong and abusive, but it's what monopolists are capable of doing. And this is what happened. Aren't there a number of class action suits uh, that are churning through the courts now uh, talking about price collusion, especially with within the poultry industry, especially? I know Tyson being one of those, Pilgrim's Pride, Sanderson, and Purdue, I think, was also cited uh, in price collusion, price fixing, uh, both towards uh, the retail, meaning they're like the Grocery Manufacturers Association or big supermarkets, but then as well as colluding on price uh, with for consumers. Um, so, you know, it's like, to me, it's all one, it's all part of this cabal. I mean, he's just using COVID-19 as an excuse, but they've been, they've been screwing customers for years by fixing prices. Isn't that true? Yeah. A book that I recommend all the time is, uh, is the meat racket by Christopher Leonard that really tells the story of how Tyson, yeah, how Tyson rose to power on the backs of, of, of poultry growers and workers and, 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 and charging consumers too much. Yeah, uh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. I've had Chris on my show a number of times. He's really an excellent journalist. And so there, there, there really is uh, a lot of lawsuits, a lot of litigation. But mm-hmm. the problem is, is we, we have proven we can't win. You know, we talked about the lawsuit that I had against right. IBP Tyson, and we alleged unfair market practices and actually did prove those practices. And the jury awarded us $1.28 billion. The judge didn't like it, though. He was a Reagan appointee. He didn't believe in the regulation. Uh, and he, he really tried to, to kill the case by giving the jury the wrong jury instructions, not the Packers and Stockyards Act jury instructions that, that would have fit that law, but the jury instructions that were more targeted towards the Sherman-Clayton Act, which mm-hmm. that which worried about are about consumers. And so, when when the judge didn't get his way with the verdict, he simply reversed it. He took that money, that settlement away, and we didn't have a chance to go after the injunctive relief to fix the market then. And wow. so that set precedent, and it basically turned the green light on for the Packers to continue to to rape, pillage, and plunder. And then they really got the signal when the Supreme Court refused to hear the Cattlemen's case for fair markets. And, of course, John Roberts had just been seated, having represented USDA in a checkoff case against Cattlemen. So you know whose side he was on. And and so they refused to hear the case for for the Cattlemen in favor of hearing the the Anna Nicole Smith case, (laughs) uh, the family feud case uh, with her against her her uh, her son-in-law. Uh, I mean, so this is nuts, but the courts do not represent justice. They represent corporate power, concentrated power, and, and the, the, the nominations that Donald Trump has done so far are more of those kinds of judges. Sure. And so what we need is probably some new legislation from Congress after we get rid of all of the corporate uh, lobbyists' uh, friends. Yeah. Uh, we, we have to have new legislation that clearly defines the law so that bad judges can't make even worse decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, we, we have to wrap up in a few minutes. I don't want to take too much of your time, Mike. But aside from opening more small plants, for example, and breaking up monopolies like the industrial packers, what else, what's your prescription for reviving rural economies and bringing farm income levels back up to more or less where they were in the, in the 70s and early 80s before the crash? 
So, you know, Katie, I can, paint, I can paint a seriously ugly and depressing picture of, of where we are <laughs> I know. I know <laughs> in you farm can. country and in our food system. But one of the, one of the highlights of, of my day is week is I get to get up and, and go to work in a system that isn't that. It, it's the model. It's the model that runs alongside. So I've got the Ranch Foods Direct thing. I've got. I mean, I used to get up every day with a stomachache uh, in anticipation of the meat, of the of the cattle futures opening up down sure. the limit. You know, meeting some order buyer that shoots me in the foot and bids me not to buy my cattle instead yeah. of to buy my cattle. I mean, I got rid of that life 20 years ago, and so I've been building the alternative, realizing realizing fully that that legislation and litigation wasn't going to get the job done, at least for me. And mm-hmm. so I built my own pathway to the market and it's pretty, it's, it's, it works. Mm-hmm. It works. And all it needs is eaters. It needs consumers that will support it. And boy, are we going to get a lot more of those right now with this COVID thing. And I'm saying, let's focus on the alternative food systems that are completely separate and aside and in a way from the Tyson, Cargill, JBS, Walmart, Kroger, Safeway model, Cisco included, totally a separate, don't even think about selling into that system and build local food infrastructure. I love John Eichard's uh, idea of local yeah. food utilities. Let the consumer, let the eater, let the taxpayer help build these new models. You know what? And they're going to be almost like what we had 40 years ago. So we've got the roadmap. It's not that hard. All we need is the support for it. And, and that's what I get excited about. I, I think we could just go home, just go home and, and make our communities as good as they can possibly be. Help your neighbor lift one another instead of standing on their neck and picking their pocket. <laughs> the only problem is, Mike, is the consumers in America don't want to pay for food. And, you know, guys like you and, you know, I mean, there's a reason why when you go to the farmer's market, meat and poultry is priced higher than a lot of people can afford. You know, there's all kinds of reasons, including not having processing and distribution facilities, of course, and I understand that. But the reality is, is Americans are really dumb, you know, for the most part about choosing their food on the basis of cost rather than on the um, the health of the planet, you know, they don't understand uh, the hidden costs of industrial uh, animal agriculture or industrial agriculture in general, which includes, you know, soil compromisation, water quality issues, uh, pollution of the air, the soil, the water, you know, like, uh, you know, all the stories. But sure, I don't know how to, you know, you have been in the trenches for over 20 years trying to convey to the consumer, why this is important. And obviously you are not alone in this. And yet that drumbeat, granted, we have a lot more farmers markets out there. Yes. But that drumbeat of your efforts to educate people doesn't really seem to be penetrating. And that is what I find having done this program now for 10 years, I find that really, really frustrating. It's just like, when are we going to wake up and smell the pollution that these people are unleashing on us? Well, it's um, going to, it's, Katie, it's going to take better government policy to stop yeah. the cheating. You have to stop the cheating. It has to be illegal to cheat. It has to be illegal to pollute, to abuse and exploit workers, to yeah. abuse animals. It's got to become illegal and the laws have to get enforced. 
But the fact is, there's plenty of money already in the food system. Consumers have never paid more, but producers have never received less. So blow up the monopoly in the middle. Eric Schlosser wrote the book Fast Food Nation that published around 2000. Mm -hmm. And I called him up. uh, It was last year. And I said, Eric, we need to follow up with another book. And guess what? Fast Food Nation may have awoken or awakened a lot of people. But you know what? I live in Colorado Springs, the city that was the center of that story at Fast Food Nation, and it is absolutely worse now. And what oh, you say man. about consumers not getting it, that's totally true. But we need to make it very hard to do the wrong thing and easier to do the right things, and consumers shouldn't have a choice to go to Walmart and buy marked beef that's marked product of the USA from South America mm-hmm. at greatly reduced prices to what below the cost of production in the United States. And the fact is, if we can recover a, an economy that works, all of a sudden, people are having, having better incomes themselves. Instead of That's big true. companies selling things from somewhere else in urban centers and taking the money away every day, leaving them shortchanged, now we keep the dollars in the community and people now can make better choices because they've got extra dollars. They have more money to buy with. Yeah. Yeah. And if, and if we can just raise that awareness about eating healthy and how much you save and doctor bills and how much happier you can be and enjoy life, that all starts to start working. But right now, if you're a consumer that doesn't have money, in fact, maybe doesn't even have a decent place to shelter, you're not listening. You're not listening to somebody that says you got to go to Ranch Foods Direct and, and buy that ground beef. They, they just don't even have the option. And, and right. it's sad. So I think we have to fix the overall economy and we need better policy that supports local economies and supports workers and supports living wages and takes the money away from the monopolies. Amen to that, Mike Calicrate. So we're going to wrap it up there and I'm going to let people know one more time. Go to MikeCalicrate.com. Did I just screw that up again? You said No, you said it right. MikeCalicrate.com. Okay. And read the No Bull newsletter. I can't tell you how much great information is on that space. Um, and in the meantime, uh, stay tuned for more uh, more shows with Mike because we're going to be collaborating, I hope, uh, on a series yeah. of shows that highlight a lot of the different problems that our current system um has generated over the past 30, 40 years. So many, many thanks to you, Mike, for all the great work you do. And uh, I look forward to collaborating further with you in uh, the next, you know, in the coming months. So take care. Thank you, Katie. Really appreciate the opportunity. You betcha. And thank you to my sponsor. And of course, to my listeners, thanks so much for tuning in today. Uh, And remember, we are still operating remotely thanks to COVID-19. And we are, uh, so in case you see any sound quality issues here, that's why we have this very special online platform. And remember that we all still need money. Not me personally. I mean, yes, I do because I'm dead in the water, but, um, but the station needs money so that they can keep broadcasting. So go to the website, click on the beating heart and give us whatever you can. I know times are tough all around, so, but we could really use the support. Thanks a lot for tuning in folks until next week. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, 
subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.